The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello, all you magical people out there, and welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. Today, we're on Chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. (laughs) The chapter begins with Harry having this nightmare of his parents disappearing in a green light, and there is this evil cackling, kind of like before. What is your interpretation of nightmares? We know from research that a lot of trauma survivors have nightmares, and some of them are directly related to their traumatic experiences, and some of them might be different. For example, somebody who survived sexual assault might have other nightmares too, such as nightmares of like explosions or somebody chasing them with a knife, even if they've never experienced it themselves. A lot of times when our body goes through this fight or flight response on a frequent basis or due to some kind of an incident, even if it's not related to trauma, then our dreams are likely to have content that is related to unsafe experiences or traumatic experiences. For Harry, for example, he did witness Voldemort killing his parents. He did see the green light. He did hear the cackling. He might not actually consciously remember this, but this is something he experienced. And I imagine because of how traumatic it was, now that he's in this magical world, now that he's being reminded of Voldemort, and secretly we know as readers that Voldemort is close to him, I think that he's having more of these nightmares because of some of the reminders that he has and also possibly because danger is near. Yeah. I've had nightmares where I wake up and I'm traumatized by that sucker. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes if we're hot, for example, at night, our body will start sweating and our heart might start pounding faster. And sometimes we'll have dreams in which we're, let's say, running away from danger of some kind. And so we might have horrific kind of nightmares, even if our body temperature changes. Right. I mean, I bet even our audience members have had those nightmares where they wake up and then they turn on the lights and they don't go back to sleep because it was that traumatic. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione are all extremely tenacious for their age. It seems that they will stop at nothing to find out who Nicholas Flamel is. That type of ambition almost reflects one of the core qualities of the House of Slytherin. They will stop at nothing to find the truth. Sometimes it feels as though... Each of us exists in the gray, and each of these characters exists in the gray because they share so many different qualities. How important is balance to an individual? 
First of all, as a proud Slytherin, I am just so excited that we're talking about this topic because I think for me specifically, being ambitious has saved my life. There were times when I didn't have hope, for example, I was really struggling with something and having some kind of a goal, a directive allowed me to keep going because I'm someone who's not willing to give up when I'm really attached to something, I will see it through. And I think that the beauty of the four houses at Hogwarts is that all of us can relate to an aspect of all of these houses. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione are all very courageous, but they're also, as you said, very tenacious and ambitious. They're also very intelligent, especially Hermione would certainly do well in Ravenclaw. And they're all very compassionate, as we see from Harry, especially, and Hermione, especially in the later books, being very compassionate toward others and fighting for other people and fighting for elvish rights and things like that. I think that it's true that most of us exist in some kind of a balance. Most of us exhibit all of these traits. However, for these three individuals, perhaps their courage is the driving force of their behavior. Whereas for somebody in Slytherin, maybe it's the ambition that's the driving force for their behavior. I love existing in the gray personally. <laughs> well, you are the gray Jedi. <laughs> yeah. I like Han Solo and things like that. People who are kind of in between, you know, antiheroes and all that kind of stuff. Speaking of an antihero, Snape is refereeing the next Quidditch match. And although Harry knows that he will be treated unfairly by Snape, he commits to playing in the game regardless. What can you say about those everyday heroic actions we all make regardless of our mental fortitude and the outcome of what we're doing? It's so interesting because I think in reading the books, we see Harry's courageous actions, right? We see him really sacrificing his well-being, knowing that Snape might not be fair given how much Snape has bullied him and picked on him in class, and yet still showing up to play the game because he knows that his teammates need him. His core values of being a part of the team give him the courage that he needs to show up. And I think that it's easy to see in a book or a movie, but very often we might not recognize it in ourselves. And I imagine a lot of you out there have probably taken multiple actions like it where maybe you felt scared and anxious and uncomfortable, but you took an action of some kind anyway because other people were relying on you because this action was important. And just like Harry, that was a very heroic, very courageous action to take. I think all of us have taken multiple actions like that, sometimes even getting out of bed when we're feeling extremely depressed and overwhelmed with the world, getting out of the house, showing up, sometimes either canceling plans because maybe we need a mental health day or maybe showing up when we're overwhelmed. All of those can be heroic actions too. As much as we recognize these actions as heroic and courageous and Gryffindor-like in our favorite characters, we also maybe can take a moment and recognize them in ourselves too. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. There are, there are people out there who struggle struggle so bad with depression or something something as easy as you know getting up getting out of bed making your bed making yourself breakfast man that, that takes a lot it takes a lot of energy when you're down in the dumps it really does and sometimes even doing just one of those just getting out of bed is already a big step 
there is a particularly touching moment where Neville hops into the Gryffindor common room after being cursed by Malfoy. His legs are locked together and most of the people in the room are laughing at him. Leg lock, of course. Malfoy. <laughs> Got to start standing up to people, Neville. How? I can barely stand at all. Hermione quickly jumps into action and immediately performs the counter curse, as she does. That's just her personality. What can this say about those who are good-hearted but may laugh at someone being pranked or bullied at the time? You know, because there's good Gryffindors in there, but they thought it was funny. I absolutely adore Hermione. She's one of my favorite characters. I think it's easy to stand back and laugh. And I think what we're seeing here is what's called a bystander effect. We're seeing everybody as a group, or most of the Gryffindors, laughing at Neville. And until Hermione takes action, everybody else just stands back. So bystander effect happens when a group of people is witnessing some kind of either suffering or injustice happening to somebody else. And unless someone interferes, the rest of the group are likely to wait for somebody else to take action. And so we're seeing all of them laughing at this. And Hermione's the only one that actually has the courageous choice to go against the grain, to do the unpopular thing. And instead of making fun of Neville, to come forward and come to his rescue. This shows not only her courage, but also her individuality, her uniqueness, her humanity, and also her sense of compassion. Very much that, you know, Hufflepuff-like trait that you were talking about, showing how she really embodies all the core values of all the houses and perhaps even though she's muggle-born, she's probably the most magical of all the characters we've read about so far. Yeah, she's amazing. She's wonderful. And there is actually another instance of compassion. And in the scene, Neville also appears to be very defeated. And he says he already knows he's not brave enough to be in Gryffindor because Malfoy already told him so. And I love how Harry just gives him his last chocolate frog and tells him that he's worth 12 of Malfoy. How truly important are these simple moments of compassion? I think that these moments of compassion are humanizing. Both Neville and Hermione have people picking on them for different things. Hermione, unfortunately, frequently gets attacked by these prejudiced remarks about her being born to muggle parents. Neville is often attacked for not being as good at magic as other people and for maybe being kind and sweet to the point that he doesn't always stand up for himself. These moments of compassion that Harry is able to show to Neville give Neville the courage that he needs to later stand up to Draco. Sometimes displaying one act of compassion toward a human being might actually save their life. If that person was considering suicide, for example, it might encourage that person to stand up for themselves and others. It shows to that person that they matter. And for Harry to give Neville his chocolate frog and to say something kind to him meant a lot to Neville and arguably might have actually started the process of Neville becoming the truly amazing character that he becomes. I think that it's possible that part of his growth is because 
people like Harry and Dumbledore and, and others believed in him. Right. I mean, he teared up and he felt this overwhelming emotion after someone actually stood up for him and made him feel good. And I can see how that can influence future actions. And if you notice, after this point, Neville is no longer afraid of Malfoy in the books. He's still afraid of Snape for a while until later, but he's no longer afraid of Malfoy. He starts standing up to him. It is so awesome. So in this chapter, they finally find out who Nicholas Flamel is and that he's actually 665 years old. Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? The Philosopher's Stone is a legendary substance with astonishing powers. It will transform any metal into pure gold and produces the elixir of life, which will make the drink from mortal. Immortal? It means you'll never die. I know what it means. The only stone currently in existence belongs to Mr. Nicholas Flamel, the noted alchemist, who last year celebrated his 665th birthday. That's what Fluffy's guarding on the third floor. That's what's under the trapdoor. The Philosopher's Stone. And we're going to make that distinction. It is the Philosopher's Stone. That's how it was intended. That's how J.K. Rowling wrote it. I don't know why it was called the Sorcerer's Stone in America. I don't understand that whole thing. But it is the Philosopher's Stone. Do you agree with that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, my understanding is the reason why the title was translated to Sorcerer's Stone is supposedly because they thought that people in the United States would not understand what a Philosopher's Stone is, which is really sad and really insulting if that's actually the case. It's the Philosopher's Stone. It's what has been in mythology and fantasy stories. So we're going to use the term Philosopher's Stone. Yes, we are. So again, Nicholas Flamel is 665 years old. He's very old. He's used the stone to basically become immortal. Him and his wife. Him and his wife. Yes, that is true. She's like 658. I can't remember, but I know she is a little bit younger than him. But they're still really old, <laughs> crusty old, <laughs> as we see in the Crimes of Grindelwald. He's kind of very old. Anyway, what do you think about the premise of immortality and age in this manner? It's really interesting because I think that many of us, because life is so short, strive for immortality. But I find that it's one of those things that when we only have a little bit of something, we value it more. So for example, for Harry, who had never really had friends or money or support, he really values his friends. He really values being able to have some gold in the bank and he uses it to help other people. For people like Draco, who has had everything handed to him and has had unlimited supply of money and friends, he doesn't really value money or people. And I think that it's possible that the same might apply to life. I think that when life is short, we value it more. And in fact, sometimes even in our very short 80 some odd years of life that average people have, although some people have fewer, some people have longer. I think that at times we also forget how short life is and it's when we either lose somebody or maybe are reminded of our own mortality somehow, maybe by a near-death experience or a diagnosis, that's when we are more likely to value life and to be cautious with it and to really try to spend every moment meaningfully. 
if we were able to achieve immortality, I think that life might become meaningless. In fact, there's a book series out there called The Scythe by Neil Shusterman, which I'm a big fan of, by the way. So in the Scythe arc series, we learn about this future, what looks like potentially utopian society, or so we think, where people have achieved immortality, except that life has kind of lost all meaning because there's nothing really to live for or to worry about. As we can see, most people exist in this kind of gray region of almost numbing depression because there's not too many awful things, but there's not really too many exciting things either. When we see Nicholas Flamel and his wife Perinel in Crimes of Grindelwald, they are looking pretty frail. Crimes of Grindelwald takes place about 50 years, more than 50 years before the current events that we're talking about. And so presumably they're even more frail by the time that our current events take place in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I think that as exciting as the concept of immortality is, it might not necessarily be as exciting and romantic as we make it out to be. Although I have to say the idea of spending eternity with you is really appealing. <laughs> um, and because the truth is, I never want to be away from you and I never oh. want to be apart from you. And also I recognize that there is beauty to having a limited lifespan. As sad as that is, I think it allows us to care. I think that without grief and without sadness, we might not be able to understand happiness. Yeah, that is beautiful. Thank you <laughs> for making my heart flutter there for a second. What you said really hit me because it's so true. We have to appreciate what we have, why we have it. And if we didn't have these struggles and this limited life and these things going on, I think things would be boring. I think things would be bland, like art and everything. The emotion wouldn't be there. The heart wouldn't be into it. The pain wouldn't be into it. And that's all the wonderful things that make so many wonderful things in this world. Well, and think about it. The kind of stories that we like to read about or see are ones about some kind of an obstacle that the character has to overcome and some kind of losses that the character had to experience. And I think that's what makes it really powerful because we're seeing that person understanding loss, experiencing loss, and then we're seeing how they manage it. If Harry's parents were never killed, if he was raised in a very comfortable, loving environment, and then went to Hogwarts and went to school and had friends and nothing bad ever happened to him, it might still be an endearing read, but it might not be such a powerful one. Right. There's a thin line between characteristics of people. He could become a Draco-type character or whatever without these kind of things that already molded him into the person that he is. Just like Nicholas and Paranel Flamel, time is the biggest obstacle, and we've run out of it for this episode. So again, my name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or on Instagram, Dr. Janina Scarlett Official. We hope you guys all have a very magical day. Thanks for tuning in.